No helicopters have been procured for me to go to golf course. Thank you. I've never said he wasn't a great politician. I'm just saying he's a <laughs> How'd you play out there today? Uh, well, I found the conditions challenging. Mostly because there's no grass on the golf course. But there never has been. I'm thinking about the swag bag, and I high hopes for the swag bag. When you got three crevices on the green, your course is trash. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to Beltway Golfer Podcast, episode 47. Alex Dixon here. This weekend in Washington, D.C. is the Dr. Charlie Sifford Sr. Invitational to commemorate Charlie Sifford's 100th birthday. Joining the Beltway Golfer Podcast this week is one of his sons, Charlie Sifford Jr., who is going to be in town for the events. Charlie Sifford is one of many prominent African-American golfers from the mid-century that helped break golf's color barrier. Charlie Sifford himself is often referred to as the Jackie Robinson of golf because he was the first African-American golfer to actually get his PGA Tour card once the PGA of America's Caucasian-only clause finally came down in 1961. Thursday, June 2nd, would have been his 100th birthday. And so this year, for the centennial celebration of Charlie Sifford's birth, there's events happening throughout the year, including at the Memorial Tournament in Ohio this weekend. I know they're doing some kind of commemoration. But this weekend in Washington, D.C., there's going to be a three-day event that was put together by Golf My Future My Game and Craig Kirby, former guest on this podcast. And it includes... A reception where the mayor of D.C., Merle Bowser, will announce that June 2nd is Charlie Sifford Day in Washington, D.C. Friday, I believe they're donating some artifacts and memorabilia from Charlie Sifford's collection to the African-American Museum, History Museum, the Smithsonian. And Saturday, the three-day event culminates with a Ryder Cup-style junior tournament that includes junior golfers from the first tee of greater Washington, D.C., from the Golf My Future My Game program, as well as some, some junior golfers from around the country from some other similar programs, I believe, in California and maybe even Detroit as well. I have to double check. Go to golfmyfuturemygame.org and you can see uh, more of the timeline of events. Saturday's tournament, the junior tournament, is free and open to the public. But Golf My Future My Game, you know, this is the kind of thing they're doing. So it's, it's, a, it's a great uh, organization to donate to if you're so inclined. But the conversation with, with uh, Charlie Sifford Jr. W- w- was great. We talked over Zoom. Really looking forward to getting a chance to meet him at one of the events this weekend. You know, Charlie Sifford Jr. was, he, he was a pioneer and, and he deserves more recognition than I think he's gotten over the years. And he's starting to get that, I, I suppose, better late than never now that this is the centennial of his birth. Another event uh, happening later on this year to celebrate Charlie Sivers achievements is around the President's Cup, which is happening at Quail Hollow in Charlotte, which is where Charlie Sifford was born and raised but prior to moving to Philadelphia and becoming a regular at Cobbs Creek. The President's Cup is putting together a, also another Charlie Sifford Cup but it's going to be the top HBCU golf programs competing in a tournament, I believe, the day before the President's Cup begins. And if you look at the rankings right now, 
Howard University's golf program is the top ranked boys program in the country for HBCU. So I would imagine there's a good chance they'll be participating in that. But that's essentially it. Uh, I'm looking forward to the events this weekend. I had a great conversation with Charlie Sifford Jr. It was, a, it was an honor and pleasure to, to speak with him. Hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Episode 47 of the Beltway Golfer Podcast. Enjoy. Before we get to the conversation with Charlie Sifford Jr., uh, a couple words about two sponsors of the Beltway Golfer Podcast. First is Four Craft Cocktails, F-O-R-E, craftcocktails.com. They've got a pre-mixed transfusion in a can. Perfect for on and off the course. Premium vodka, ginger ale, grape juice, lime juice, already in the can, ready to go. It's not a mixer. It's already got the booze in it. No reason, no reason to add vodka unless you know you're, you're certainly entitled to. Uh, but it's a refreshing drink. I enjoyed several over Memorial Day weekend. My beer fridge and, and drink fridge here in, in my podcast studio slash garage is is stocked with some forecraft. Go to forecraftcocktails.com. They've got a location finder right there on the website. Total Wine and Beverage all over the Northern Virginia carries them. A lot of green grass facilities, both private and public, are starting to carry them as well. So seek it out if you haven't tried it, fourcraftcocktails.com. Also sponsoring the Beltway Golfer podcast this week is a golf course many folks listening to this probably think they know very well, uh, Reston National Golf Course. Reston National, if you don't know, is under new ownership and new management within the last couple years. And if you haven't been out there recently, they've been putting a lot of work and resources into updating the grounds there. The clubhouse has got a totally, has been totally renovated. doesn't even look the same. They're getting ready to open up a new bar and restaurant. It's really night and day from what it looked like before. The pro shop looks totally different. They just added a whole bunch of flat screens and upgraded the, the patio. If you're walking up to the clubhouse to the left, it looks fantastic. And recently, they've started to put a lot of work into the course. They've, they've updated the driving range, all the bunkering, getting it, you know, in as good as good a shape as that can possibly be. So if you were like myself and hadn't been out to Reston National in the last couple of years, go back out. Check it out. It's, it's, it's in great shape. They're putting a lot of effort and resources into it. It hasn't moved. It's still incredibly convenient. One of the one of the most convenient eighteen hole public golf courses in Washington D.C., right there off the toll road. Go check it out again. Reston National Golf Course. First off, Mr. Sifford, thank you very much for for joining the Bellway Golfer Podcast. It's an honor to speak to you and to talk about yourself and 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 your father and his legacy and the event that's coming up uh, the weekend of what would be his hundredth birthday at Langston Golf right. Course here in Washington yes. D.C. Um, so let's let's start with that event. So so first off, um, I understand you you are coming to town for the event. Yes, um, I'll be in there um, Wednesday evening um, on the first, and then the um, there's a little party party for my father on the second, and then um, we're gonna go over to the Smithsonian Institute where they're gonna enshrine some of his memorabilia into it on on um, Friday. And then there's a junior tournament being played at Langston that Saturday. So we got a full weekend schedule. So Thursday, June 2nd, that would be his hundred. That's his, his actual birthday, yes. So he was born on June 2nd, 1922. Correct. Wow. Um, now, have you said, and when you say the Smithsonian, this is the, uh, the African-American Museum of History and Culture. Uh, yes. Does he, uh, do they, they don't have any pieces from your father in there yet? No. Oh, okay. Um, um, not that I know of. 
I've, no, I've been, I've been I've never, I haven't been there as far as I know. They don't have okay. there. I've been once. I feel like they had some Tiger Woods stuff, but I could be wrong. I think that, <laughs> well, you know, I think everybody has Tiger Woods stuff, but they can get it. <laughs> right. right. So that's going to be a whole weekend, like three days. And yes. so then the junior right. tournament, which is, as I understand, it's going to have some juniors from like the first tee up against uh, some juniors from the golf, my future, my game, and, and some others. Correct. Yes. And it'll be, it'll be a, a fun day. Um, yeah, it's going to be like, I guess, like a little match, you know match play for you know for bragging rights and trophy rights at the end of the day very cool now where do you reside yourself i live in um, cleveland ohio in cleveland a family moved here in uh 75 and my father took over um sleepy hollow in brexfield ohio uh and that was a few years before the senior tour got started okay and then after the senior tour started that's where he ended up playing start playing regularly on that tour okay you don't have to answer this if you don't want, but just so we can do some math to figure out your perspective and some of the events of your father's life. How old was he when he had you? Um, or you, or or how he was, old are you? He was, he was twenty five. <laughs> he was twenty five when I was born. Okay, so you're so you're you're you you lived three quarters of a century, right? Okay, excellent. Um, well, well, let's dive into something. Charlie Sifford is 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 a well known name in golf, obviously, obviously, but um, I think to uh, a younger generation, to a lot of people, is not well known enough. Um, so let, let's start with kind of going through, through his career and, and, and why he's such, um, such an important figure in the, in the history of not just African-American golf, but, but golf in general. Um, you know, I, was, I, I've, I have not read his autobiography, which once we set this up, I put it in Amazon. Amazon's shipping me the book as we speak, but I haven't, okay. I haven't got a chance to read it yet. Okay. Uh, but I have read a lot about, you know, just the, the integration in the sport and that era um, and did some research, you know, additional research since we started talking. Um, but let, let's, let's start back. Let's kind of walk through your, through your dad's life a little bit. I mean, you know, at the, at the high level, some folks, you know, compare him to Jackie Robinson, right? I mean, he's kind of known as the Jackie Robinson of golf simply because he was the first on the PGA. Yeah, he was, yeah. He was, um, he was, he was a good friend of Jackie's. Um, and before he decided to, to take on the, um, PGA and try to play on the tour, he had a long conversation with Jackie. Um, to try to decide if he was going to do that or not. And Jackie told him, um, if you asked him, was he a quitter? And my father said, no. You know, once I set my mind to doing something, I'm, I'm going to do my best to succeed at it. And Jackie said he was glad to hear that because he told my father, said, you're going to run into a lot of obstacles and, you, and quitting is going to be passing through your mind at some point. But as long as you determine and um, have the talent, you should be able to succeed at what you really want to do. Just, you're going to face it. He told him he was going to face a lot of adversity, which he did. He faced it, dealt with it, and just kept on pushing. So to, to frame a little bit as we go through your father's life and career, um, you know, the, how long this took. I read, I read in one of the articles I was reading, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, that that conversation that you were referring to was I read somewhere like 1947, like late. Yeah, it's in the 40s, not too long after, you know, Jackie had broken through. Okay, you know, so, so but that means that means your dad is in his mid 20s. Correct. He didn't get the the the, the, the Caucasian only clause, and your dad getting his approved PGA Tour card didn't come until 1960. So 13 years later. Right. Well, actually, 61. 61. Okay. 61. That's when they filed a lawsuit. And they, you know, it was the, the the Caucasian clause was stricken, and he actually got his players approved card in in '62. You know, he was like, you know, that's when he, you know, actually was approved player to play on the tour. So in 
So as we and, go through this, uh, I mean, I mean, he's, he's a forty. He's forty years old. He's, yes, right. Wow. So you know, he compared to the now, you know, he's he's you know, he's like twenty years behind the time as far right. as you know what the players are now. They you know they coming out of school, nineteen, twenty, twenty one years old, ready to play, and he couldn't he couldn't participate, you know, in, in the, what they call the prime of his career. Right. Right. Um, so to back up a little bit, just some early days. So your, your, your father was born and raised in North Carolina in the Charlotte area, correct? Charlotte, correct. Okay. Um, but then at some point as a teenager, he, he moved up to Philadelphia? Yes, he used to work at the, um, the country club of Charlotte. He was a caddy there. And it was probably within a three or four year period between the caddy and he became one of the better players at the country club. Um, but he wasn't allowed to play in too many golf courses in the Charlotte area. So he had an older brother that lived in Philadelphia and he moved to Philadelphia. So he had have a chance to opportunity to, to play, play a little bit more up there. Um, he went to work at, I think it was Nabisco company, okay. you know, in order to make ends meet until he got, got situated enough where he had some money where he can go to the golf course. Um, and the first golf course he was playing in, Philadelphia was called Cobbs Creek. And that's where he, he honed his game at while he was living in Philly. So that was essentially his home course while he was Yes, there. right. Cobb, Cobbs Creek is well known and uh, it's in the news recently because I think it's closed yeah, it's right like now. They're doing they're doing a lot of, of, yeah, they're doing a lot they're of doing renovations. renovations and, right. Um, but he was, there were some good golfers there at the time. Did I, did I read also uh, Howard Wheeler? The, yeah, Howard Wheeler. He was, at that time, he was, he was the man. You know, if you can compete against him, you knew you had a strong game. Um, I think my father told me the first time he played Howard, Howard beat him up pretty bad on the golf course. And that just made him more determined to improve his game, you know, so he can compete against Howard. And they got to the point where they were, eventually they would, whoever had the hot putter would end up winning. But he, his, his game got strong enough where he can compete head to head with Howard on many occasions. And then eventually they became partners when they played a lot of match plays against other yeah. players. And as background, Mr. Wheeler was another, you know, prominent African-American golfer. Yes, right. And I, and I re- so I, did I read this that, so they, they both competed on the UGA tour. Correct. And one thing they had in common was both Howard Wheeler and your father both won the national open, the national championship on the UGA right. six right. times each. Correct. Which is My father won it five times in a row and six out of seven. That's, so he, that's yeah. And then that's um, the last time he won it, they, they just, they just gave, they just gave him the whole trophy. And that's, it's on it's on display. Is that right? At the Hall of Fame, yes. Oh, that's very cool. And so, in looking this up, I was doing a little research. That stretch that your father won the UGA National Championship um, from 1952 to 1956. I I believe the year after was um, this is this is bringing him back to my Washington D.C. connection was actually here at East Potomac Park Golf Course that I, I had to look up an old article, but it sounded like your father had the lead until the final ru- final round, and then Teddy Rhodes came back and beat him. Right, yeah, him and T- Teddy was also an ex- excellent player. He was from uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, he was, him and my father were real close. Um, our families were close. You know, I, I called him Uncle Teddy. Okay. And um, so, you know, we, they traveled a lot together, and he was instrumental in um, getting – Billy Eckstein was sponsoring my father while they were playing on the tour. But Teddy at the time was was teaching um, Joe Lewis the game of golf. Got it. So you know, he so so your father is winning uh, UGA. You know, throughout the early to mid fifties, um, 
you know, the, the Caucasians only clause and the PGA tour isn't lifted until 1961. Can you talk about that period in the late fifties of, of your father trying to, to break through on the PGA tour and, and kind of the resistance he was seeing? Yes. Um, at the, there were several courses that, you know, on the tour that when it, he, he played on the East, on the West coast, they can play um, the Los Angeles open, you know, um, they could play in San Diego, and I think there was a tournament in Phoenix that they could play in because they were opens. So that means anyone can play in them. But once the tour left California and San Diego, started going down south, you know, in Georgia, Mississippi, states like that, he wasn't allowed to play in the tournaments down there. Um, he, but they did have the PGA did have a tournament that they sanctioned, but it wasn't an official tournament because it was 54 holes. It was a Long Beach Open okay. in 1957, and he won that. But it was just a 54-hole tournament, so it wasn't considered, a, you know, a regulation PGA tournament, okay. even though they they co co-sponsored it. Was I mean, what was I mean? I, I would imagine he was, you know, trying to get on a PGA tour. What, what was right. there, is there like an application process that kept getting yeah. denied, or was it just yeah, that, you that had, clause yes, was there? They, um, they had you fill out your entry fee and fill out the application, um, send your entry fee in, and then it was up to the uh, the sponsors to determine if you if they were going to let you play in the tournament. At that time, the PGA really didn't have as much control over tournaments that they do now. Okay. It was the sponsors and the golf course that determined who was going to play in the um, tournaments. And uh, they just didn't want any, any people of color to play in the tournament at the time. Even after the um, Caucasian clause was struck down, a lot of tournaments changed their title from open to invitationals. That way they still can have control over who can play in the tournament. Oh, interesting. Um, I, I was reading that even some of those tournaments that you mentioned that he was allowed in in San Diego and L.A. and Phoenix, you know, just because he was maybe allowed to play in the tournament doesn't mean he was allowed in clubhouses, right. local hotels, restaurants. Right, true. Most most of the time during his traveling, he stayed with friends that he had met, you know, in the different cities. Um, that's where he stayed at, ate dinner at. Um, they wouldn't let him eat in the locker room. There were few that let him. He could eat his food. He can get his food, but he had to go into the locker room. He couldn't eat in the restaurant. Um, he had to change his, in some tournaments, he, he couldn't even go into the locker room. He had to change his, change his shoes in, in the parking lot. Wow. So, it was, you know, it was it was rough, but, you know, he was determined. And some of the other players, as time went along, you know, saw what he was going through, and they start joining him in the, in the locker room to eat or in the parking lot. You know, that's yeah. to show that they, you know, they were supporting him for what he was trying to do. And 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 your father, you know, he be, he eventually became the, the the first one to actually join the PGA Tour, and really through a, a large part of that that era was kind of the, the the face of the movement. But there there were there were several other American African excuse me African American golfers that were yeah, play, they, trying they to play in these tournaments and trying to break through. Yeah, right? they had had a lot of you. They had a, it was the Ray Bots. You had Cliff Brown, um, George Johnson. Um, they had Bill Spiller out of Los Angeles. Bill, that um, was the name I was trying to pull. Yeah. Bill Spiller, and my cousin Curtis Sifford also played. And uh, it was at, at any given, and it was anywhere from ten to twelve African Americans that had the talent to play, but they just weren't allowed the opportunity to play the game. So you know, most of them were you know they did, and then after a certain amount of 
being turned away. A lot of them just lost interest in trying to get on the tour. They just more or less just concentrated on playing on the, what they call back then the Chipman Tour. Had a tournament going through the South with African Americans to play on and public golf courses. Was that was the was the quote unquote Chitlin tour? Was that the UGA tour? Is that something different? No, that was no, that was different. That was, that was you different. know, yeah, the UGA was was um was organized after the after the um Chitlin tour was established. Okay, but um, but then but that kind of phased out, and then the U, UGA came in, and that was the main t- tour that the um, players played on then from Do the you- late fifties, early sixties. Because and so I mean, just doing the math. So you know, we're we're getting if we're getting into the mid to late fifties. So your father's, you know, getting into his mid to late thirties, and he was twenty five when he, he had you. I mean, were, did you ever go to any of these tournaments? Do you like what? what what's your earliest um, memory of going to memory of going to these tournaments? The ones I went to was just you know around in, on the West Coast. You know, I went to the L.A. Open, um, San Diego's tournaments that we, he could drive to. Cause, you know, he just didn't have the money. You know, travel around the country. Okay. Were you living you know, in Southern California? Yeah. Is that we lived in California? Lived? Yeah, we lived in California. We moved there in '57. Okay, so yeah. I was I was nine. I turned ten in California, and uh, we just didn't have the money to travel across country, you know, with the whole family. So um, he did, he traveled mostly by himself, you know, going across the different states and countries. And um, but the only time I really saw him play was basically at the LA Open, you know, yeah. when he was, when we were living out there. Um, I didn't really see him play a lot or caddy for him until he got on the senior tour, you know, much later in, the, you know, like in the early eighties when the senior sure, tour sure. started taking off. Another thing I, I read, I mean, uh, everyone's trying to get on the, on the PGA tour for, for a number of reasons, but one, but that that's where the money is. Right. And, and so the UGA didn't generate quite as, you know, the money that the PGA tour did. And so a lot of like your father, and a lot of others to, to make up for it, to make ends meet would have to go to public courses and, and, and yeah, hustle it, for the it, cash. It was a lot of, it was a lot of, Money exchange on them golf courses, you know, they had some big money games. Yeah, a lot of gambling going on. You know, the thing about it, they were all, they were all friends. But when it came to golf, they would try to beat each other. Sure. You know, but they traveled together. They stayed in the same hotel. You know, it was like a, you know, they just enjoyed each other's company until they got on the golf course, and it was, you know, the friendship was over until the ground was open. Yeah. I read that, um, you know, as the, the lead up to getting the Caucasians only clause removed, which was in place, I believe, from 1931 until 1961, when your, your father had right. a hand in removing it, but was that he had applied to play um, in the Bing, the, at Pebble Beach in the, in the Bing, Bing Crosby Pro-Am and kept getting denied. Yeah. And maybe Joe Lewis and Jackie Robinson and, and, and the AG at yeah, was, all kind of stuff. Joe, yeah, Joe Lewis had a lot of influence, you know, at the time, you know, he was the heavyweight champion in the world. And everybody knew that he was a good golfer. He got a lot of players, a few players into the um the San Diego Open. Okay. And then um they played well down there. And um a couple of them qualified, you know, to go, you know, go to the next tournament, which I think was but Pebble Beach, you know, after that. But that's how they, they, they were able to get in by finishing. I think if normally if you finish in the top ten of the previous tournament, that automatically qualified you for a the next tournament. And that's how that's how they qualified and playing some of the other tournaments. Were your father and Joe Lewis, were they close? Yes. Yeah. Right. They were real close. I remember walking around, you know, in California, we were living out there. Him and Teddy and, and Joe and Billy, they would be on the golf course all the time playing golf. Interesting. Um 
you know, it, it seems to me, I mean, obviously that's, you know, nowadays imagining that the Caucasians only clause that lasts for 30 years is, is, is kind of mind blowing, but also you read some of these anecdotes. Um, one I read was, um, how Spiller and Joe Lewis both tried to get into the San Diego open and they denied both. And essentially only because Joe Lewis made a, a, a big stink about it and, and went public in the press that they eventually allowed Joe in, but not Spiller almost right. as a PR move. Right. It was more of a publicity, you know, because, you know, Joe, who he was, was the champion. So, you know, he spoke out. So they had, you know, they, they kind of bent the rule, their rules a little bit to let him in there, but they wouldn't let anybody else in. And then I think eventually he got some of the other players into the tournament, you know, in the next couple of years. But that one first year, he was the only one allowed to play. Got it. I mean, do you, so do you, what about yourself? I mean, do you remember that era leading up to him getting his, his PGA tour card? And, you know, what, what was that like? I mean, was that a, a tough time of frustration? And uh, well, it was, it was frustrating because I knew, I didn't know any um, the aspects of the lawsuit, but I know it was a tough time for him because, um, you know, basically when he told me, you know, he was he was frustrated because he couldn't play in a lot of tournaments. And um, he told me that he, you know, the, the Attorney General Moss, um, had, he had, that he had met several years before filing a lawsuit in 61 and he was playing golf and when the Los Angeles Open was supposed to be getting ready to play. Sure. In California. And uh, Moss asked him, was he playing? And he said no. And he, and he told Moss why he couldn't play. And that's when, um, because of the Caucasian only clause. And Moss was the one that initiated the lawsuit. And he told the PGA that they couldn't have another tournament in California as long as they had that um, Caucasian only clause in there. And so, and so they, they they basically based on that letter that that AG Moss wrote, they removed the Caucasians only clause. Why did I read that? But that your your father didn't get his PGA Tour card necessarily officially for another few years. Or yeah, well, they had what they call a a player's approved card. You had yeah. to be able to do certain things during that time. And the player's approved card that just approved you to play on the tour. Okay, um, you had to win X number of dollars make a certain amount of cuts and things like that and be be recommended by a couple members that's already PGA members in order to become a full player, full PGA player. And Jerry Barber, that was at the time, was a former PGA champion. He was running, I think, the Griffith Park golf courses for the city of Los Angeles. And he was one of the players that, you know, wrote that a recommendation so he could get his full PGA card. So... So he, he finally gets the the, the, the Caucasians, only, Caucasians only clause is removed. Your father's 39. Right. He doesn't get his PGA tour card until 64. So he's 42. But this is what I thought. So, so your, your father won officially twice on tour, right? Right. The, the 67 Greater Hartford Open, which is now the Travelers Championship. Right. And the 69 LA Open, which is now the Genesis at Riviera. Right. But he's, if my math is right, he's like 40, 44, 46 years Boy, old. He was, 40. I think he was 45 when he won. Hartford, and then 47 when he won the LA Open. So if nothing else, I mean, that goes to show, you know, that that those the prime of his career, you know, you know, if he was able to play in the, on the, 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 you know, the biggest tour in golf on earth for, for those 20 years from the time he was, you know, his early 20s to 40, how many times could have he won? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's no, you know, it's no, it's no telling what what he could have done. You know, he might not have done anything, but we never know now. But you know, it's all yeah. there was always that he never had the opportunity to see what he could do and to prove what he could do. But you know, at, at forty five, you know, that just show the determination that he had to be able to compete. You know, at that age against you know the younger the younger guys that was out there, I'm pretty sure it wasn't too many guys in their forties. You know, still playing golf. You know, at that high level. Yeah. As your dad got kind of older and like, you know, through the, after he retired and through the rest of his life, did he, you know, how did he, I'm just, I'm just putting myself in, you know, I can't, it's impossible for me to put him you know, be, be in his shoes, but I, I can't imagine how frustrated you'd be, you know, and, and thinking about yeah, that. Yeah, he, uh, he had some frustrating times, but as he got older, he mellowed out, you know, and realized that, you know, after his career was over, you know, he, he did real well on the, the senior tour, you know, he, he made, made a lot of money. You know, that he was comfortable, you know, he realized he he um he did he succeeded at what he wanted to do, prove that a black man could play the game at, at the highest level. And uh, that's what he would really wanted to do. You know, just wanted to show that if you if you given a chance, he you know, he could play and be competitive against, you know, anybody in the world. And he was he was happy, you know, we, you know, bottom line, he was happy with his career at the end. Um, it was, you know, he was, there was no more stress on him, you know, and in his later years, he just relaxed. He played a lot of friendly golf with friends and family and, you know, and just enjoyed his later years in life. Um, did he smoke cigars until, until the end? He, he smoked cigars up until his probably his mid eighties. Wow. And then after that, he just. He carried, you know, he chewed them more than he smoked them after that. But he always, you know, it was he always had one. It was, it was always a cigar around. He might take a couple puffs and put it down, you know, pick it up again, relight it. But um, do you know he, when that, uh, that that was essentially his trademark? Or, or, or one yeah, of them, he like, started smoking cigars when he was caddying when he was like thirteen years old. Wow! And he smoked all the way up until you know late eighties. And I, you know, it, it was a. Don't let the don't let the Surgeon General hear hear that. I mean, he smoked cigars for seventy years until <laughs> yeah, ninety two. You know, he was you know he was this you know he never he never had any problems because of the cigar. You know, but the cigar is a little bit different than smoking a cigarette. Sure, but um, but he enjoyed it. it relaxed it relaxed him. That's that was you know when he got nervous or whatever playing golf, that would help help him calm his nerves down. You know sure. when he was playing. Interesting. Um, what about some of the other you know some there's. You know, your your dad is the first uh, African American on the PGA Tour. Is is you know noted as being you know Jackie Robinson of, of golf. But there, there were, as we've mentioned a couple already, but there there are several other um, you know trailblazers in the sport, uh, African Americans. Did what, I'm just curious. You know, did he have a close relationship? I, I think I'd read in in one piece about you know maybe early on when like with Lee Elder there was some conflict there about credit he was getting when he when he got into the masters but i'm curious like what was his relationship with Lee Elder, Calvin Pete, Jim Thorpe like all those guys oh, we, they all got along you know um Pete Brown who's won in 1964 he won the San Diego tournament they were real close Calvin Pete, Lee Elder you know they just, it was nothing no animosity between the players but they knew the rules was was dictating what happened. Nothing sure. between them dictated what happened, you know. Because there were several times, because they were early in my dad's career. If you, they said if you won a tournament, 
you automatically qualify for the Masters. So he won in 67, he didn't get no invitation. And he won in 69, he never got an invitation. So, you know, he was he was bitter about that because, you know, he felt that he had qualified. He did what he had to do, win a tournament. And yet, you know, they wouldn't let him play. But then when he got in, when he got inducted to the Hall of Fame, that, that I think that more than made up for yeah. not being uh, invited to the Masters because um, he never dreamed that he would, you know, would be elected into the Hall of Fame. And that was just something that he was really, really excited about. Yeah. I mean, that I think that piece there is interesting because it's, it's, it's more than understandable. You know, Lee Elder is, is, is celebrated and, and rightfully so as yeah. you know, the first black man to play in the Masters. Right. However, yeah. if, you, if you just read that, you might think that he was the first one that essentially qualified to play where that's not uh, that is not the case. You know, this, but, you know, they, they say they were, there were rule changes along the way that stopped Pete and as well as my father from playing in the Masters. Yeah. Interesting. But, um, but they understood, you know, like I said, there was nothing, no animosity between any of the players out there because they know the decision was out of their hands as far as who was going to play where. Yeah. Um, your father developed, obviously later in life, developed a relationship with, with Tiger. Um, yes. I, I understand Charlie Woods is named after your father? Yes. Um, uh, and we had I had an opportunity to meet Charlie um, at, when Tiger got inducted to the Hall of Fame. My grandson met him, Tagger and Charlie, you know, and they, and they took pictures with, with each other. They get, they seemed to hit it off, you know, two, two young kids, you know, they, they had a, they had a ball talking to each other. What would your dad think of Charlie's, uh, Charlie's game at such a young age? Oh, uh, he, he probably, he'd say the same thing that he told me when we first saw Tagger. The first time he saw Tagger was like, he was 14 years old and he knew then that he was going to be something special. And um, I probably, I think he would say the same thing about Charlie because I've seen Charlie swing and his swing is amazing. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't think he's as young as he is with that kind of swing. Um, at some point, uh, Tiger said, you know, your dad was the grandfather he never had. So, I mean, yeah, he called, they, he must, they must have gotten close. Yeah, they called him, he, he called him his honorary grandfather. You know, whenever they saw each other, you know, they would huddle up and hug and talk, you know, and just had a nice conversation. Uh, one year we was down at um, Firestone was played here in Akron. Uh, we were at the tournament, and, uh, and Taggart had was on a practice round with his coach Butch Harmon was out there. You know, most of the players kind of tune out when somebody's calling their name while they out there practicing. But uh, my father called him, and he stopped in his tracks and turned around and just waved at my father and told him to come on out on the on the on the, on the hole with me and walked up. They walked up to the green together. Yeah. And I could see everybody was around in that area was wondering who they didn't, they had no idea who my father was. And they was, everybody was thinking, who is that? Who is that? But, you know, cause it's, cause it's the, you know, at that, in the eighties and I mean, like in the nineties, late nineties, early two thousands, uh, there was a lot of people who had no idea who Charlie Siff was. Yeah. I think that's probably and, you still, know, the then he got a little recognition when he got inducted to the hall of fame. Then that's when, people start recognizing the name again. He, you know, he had been away from the limelight once he retired from the senior tour. Do you think today, you know, 2022, do you think the, the PGA Tour and just the world of golf in general has done a good job with your, your father's legacy and, and some of the other black golfers of his time? Um, they, they're starting to um, give some recognition, you know, 
to the um, African Americans uh, and nine any uh, and the rest of the nine white players out there. They starting to recognize them more. You know what they did, what they had to go through. You know, and then, and there's been a lot of things scheduled this year to celebrate my father's 100th birthday. The Genesis, uh, when the first hole, they had a, a flag with a picture of my father um, highlighted with 100 written on the flag, and they had a big, big sign billboard on the first hole. Um, the players had it. They also did the same thing with the flag. You know, just to um, you know, this letter by so people could be aware yeah. that um, it was my father's 100th birthday. So they starting to, um, you know, they supporting the, you know, the first team, which is, you know, to help um, minorities as well as whites to, you know, get get the kids involved in the game. You know, and they starting to um, contribute money to certain aspects to help create the game and make it grow. Um, it's probably something that, you know, a lot of people think they should have done earlier, but but they're doing it now. So, you know, everything's it's a slow process, no matter what it is. But, you know, I think they, they're moving in the right direction right now. And, you know, it's a positive thing. What about specifically Augusta National and the Masters? I mean, they're arguably the most revered um, organization in, in American golf. And they only just recently, in a few years, finally invited Lee Elder out to be a part of that ceremonial for right. Have they ever you know, reached out to, to your father or your family we, to say, hey, we made a mistake? No, we just, my father already, no, no, none of the Siffers have ever heard anything from them. the organizers of the Masters. We never heard anything from them at all. So it seems you know, like not even, not, not even uh, you know, when he got the got inducted, you know, got the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award, there was, you know, no contact whatsoever from them. So, you know, we had other people to reach out, but not the, not the Augusta people. That, that tells me there's work to be done. Yeah, well, you know, he's uh, true, but, you know, everything, everything, I guess, takes time, you know. Yeah, especially with that. <laughs> um, what's your take or, or what, you know, what do you, well, let me ask a couple, let me go back up a little bit. What about yourself? Were you... Did you try to follow your your father's footsteps? Are you were you were you ever a big golfer? Are you a big golfer? I, I play golf. I like the game. I didn't love it like the, the way my father did. Another to to put the time in, the devotion, hard work. You have to love that game. Yeah. Um, and I saw what my father was going through. You know, some of the frustration and disappointment. I, you know, I just didn't didn't love it the way he did. I played baseball all through all the way up to my first year in college. Okay. And that was my primary sport. Then I started, I played, I would play golf because other people around me played, but I just didn't, I played it because I, I like to be, play the game and be around my friends, but I didn't love it the way he did. I wasn't going, I, I just couldn't see myself out there practicing four or five, six hours a day and not, and not being treated equally, you know, with yeah. other players. Sure. I just, I just couldn't see that doing that. And I just, never developed that love that he had for it. And he never really pushed me. He let me do, decide to do what I wanted to do as far as sports. And I chose to play baseball. And he was happy, you know, he was happy with that. As long as I was your, doing something. What about your, you have a brother, do you have a brother and a sister? I just have a brother. He plays football. He played football. And okay. he played, he played golf even less than I did. And, you know, coming up through high school and stuff. He was, he was, uh, he was 90% football. He played, played little, he played in junior college and he hurt his knee. And he didn't, didn't play anymore. Have you felt since you're 
since you're mm-hmm. since you're since you share your father's name, has that does has that kind of brought with it the responsibility of, of trying to promote his legacy? No, it's you know it's an honor to be able to um you know recognize my father. You know, um, it's a privilege. You know, I just, I've, I've been been pretty busy this year, but you know, it's something I enjoy doing because of the love I have for my father. Got it. Um, what about nowadays? You know, th- there aren't a lot of African American golfers on tour today. There's only only three or four. Um, right. And there was there's periods in the in the late '60s and '70s, you know, when there were more. Um, Correct. Any any? What's your take on on that? Um, well, it's the exposure to the game is one thing. You know, when my father was coming up and other guys that was playing around the era he was, they were exposed to the game by caddy. You know, you know that's but when the golf cart came out, you know, they eliminated a lot of the caddy jobs at the country clubs. Oh, right. And then they set the cost of the equipment. You know, was, they, inflation really hit the golf industry. When, you know, back in the day, you can buy a whole set of clubs, bag, irons, woods, and everything for two or three hundred dollars. Now you got clubs that cost three, four hundred dollars a piece. So you know right. the, the cost, the cost of the game is inhibited. Yeah. You know, when it comes to, you know, you, you got to pay for green fees to play golf, baseball, you basketball, football, you just go to the open field and play. Yeah, yeah sure. You know, it doesn't cost you anything. So, you know, the cost factor as far as equipment and playing the game and opportunity to be exposed to the game is it's not there like it was back in the 40s 50s and 60s right um well this has been great and uh, it sounds like the event's gonna be a terrific that's that's fantastic they're coming in town for i understand the the mayor is gonna announce june 2nd as as charlie sifford day and uh yes i heard yes it's pretty cool um do you do you have any recollection i found some more articles i mentioned the the one uga national championship um, after he had won five in a row, that he came in second at East Potomac. But I did find one. They used to have a, it wasn't a PGA, I don't even think it was a UGA event, but the Capital City Open, I think he won like when he was in his 50s, like late, later on in the, in the 70s. But do you have any recollection or or have you played any of the courses here in D.C., like Langston, where the, where the tournament? I played, in, I played in Langston when I was a teenager. Because they, UGA, they had a, when they had their tournaments, they also had a, a junior division. Okay. And I played in that, and Renee Powell played in that. And that's how, you know, we, we met when we were kids and um, we're still friends to, to this day. Oh, that's and uh, that's when, you know, we, I played in Langston, I played in Pittsburgh, you know, wherever they had the junior tournaments, you know, we, I, we was able to play. And um, I had fun playing it, but I still just didn't have that, that passion, you know, yeah, yeah. That, that you need. I just played the, to, be, to have fun, you know, and enjoy the game. Did I see Renee Powell? She recently won an award named named after your father, right? Uh, a Charles yes, award. Um, this, this award that was developed by the PGA and the, the Southern Company. Okay. Um, given to someone that was working towards the diversity in the game of golf, Got it. Okay. and um, we thought it was appropriate, you know, because she's she's had a lot of junior tournaments at her course. Uh, she works with the um, the veterans. She gives veterans, the ladies and, and the men lessons and they have tournaments at her golf course in Clearview in uh, East Canton, Ohio. Uh, so we thought it was appropriate that, you know, she would be the first one. You know, she's working towards diversity, plus she's also a close family friend. 
Oh, excellent. But, yeah, so it really worked out, you know. So we went, we were that, and then, um, you know, we, like I said, was, I usually go down and play our golf course once or twice a year down okay. in East Canton. It's a real okay. nice golf course. That's Clearview, correct? Clearview, yes. Yeah. Right. Um, the PJ made it a national monument. Named it, oh, really? Made it a national monument. Yeah. Very cool. Um, well, listen, I, I'll let you go. I know I've gone, I've gone over our time here. But I, okay. I appreciate you taking the time to talk, and, and it was my pleasure. I hope, get, I hope we get the opportunity to meet when you're in town for the event. From uh, yeah, June I should be. I'll be there like that. I'll be there on the first, and I'll be there until the fourth. Excellent. I'll be leaving out that Sunday, coming back home. Fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll at the very least, I'll be out checking out some of the uh, some of the junior tournament. Uh, so okay, yeah, I'll be there because um, I've been been told I have to give out give out the awards. Okay. So I'll be there for the whole. I'll be there for the whole tournament. It'll be a pleasure to see the young kids out there playing. Yeah. You know, you know, playing some competition like that. You know, I just, I didn't have the opportunity to, you know, to play and organize tournaments like that at that young age. Right. right. Other than the U UGA, uh, and that was it. That was the only thing. We, I only organized tournaments I ever played in when I was right. a kid. So it'll be a pleasure to see the young kids out there playing and. See, see, see how much talent they have, and see. You know, hopefully, they we might be, be able to get a couple more, get a couple of them out there on the tour somewhere down the line. You never know. You never know. Very yeah, cool. You never know. That's right. All right, Mister Sifra, this has been great. I appreciate it very much, and okay. uh, we'll, we'll see you. Enjoyed it. Absolutely. Okay. Hopefully, I see you next week. All right. Sounds good. I okay. Appreciate. Take care. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. Right. I don't have a good golf game. But I don't really care. I'm a, I'm a regular dude living in D.C. And I want to know about D.C.-centric golf stuff. If you can tell me something that I don't already know, then that is great for me. I don't want the regular stuff. I want exciting stuff. I want different stuff. I don't want stuff I can't hear elsewhere. But I want it to be about D.C. golf. 